0: tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This weekend's casting call for the production Moana canceled, a result of the strike called by the union SAG-AFTRA, the Screen Actors Guild, and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. The production on the show Lilo and Stitch uh, wrapped up shooting yesterday and is now on pause until the labor dispute is settled. NCIS Hawaii is said to be in limbo since the screenwriters walk out two months ago, but what could be a long-term industry walkout uh, mean to Hawai'i's economy. We talked to Irish Barber, who is the business representative for another movie industry union, IATSE, which is the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. It represents the crew who work behind the cameras. Its members were working on a number of productions that were just wrapping up or about to start.
1: We were supposed to start NCIS late this month, early next month, and that's obviously not going to happen now. So yeah, it's been very anxious, which we believe was the point of the shutdown, and we're. Uh, but we stand in solidarity with the actors and the writers who are actively, directly impacted. Which is why we're not working as well. Talk
0: about the impact uh, to your members. I mean, uh, we know that the other shows Five O went
1: away a while ago. Right. Magnum did not Magnum get picked up again. Cancelled. Yes. So we are hoping to have two other TV series. Greenlit, we were hoping to start another one that we did the pilot for last year. They were greenlit. That's on hold. So everything that we've been prepping for is shut down.
0: Was that the ocean safety, ocean rescue?
1: Yes. And then we're also waiting to hear about Zubi Kamealoha and Chief of War. These are TV series that we hope to get picked up for another season. All of those are, are now... Just on hold. They didn't give green lights, but uh, we had good authority that they were happy with the last season.
0: And talk about you know the impact uh, here in Hawaii. I mean, I'm not sure where you know the strike lines will appear here, but there's so many people that are tied into the movie industry. Whether you're a small business, you know, a, a catering food, uh, you mm-hmm. know, or a business that rents out the trucks or equipment. Mm-hmm.
1: All of that is now down to zero. We have lots of trucks, cash trailers unique to our industry. You can't use them anywhere else. We've got the honey wagon, cash trailers, air conditioning that's small and portable or big and huge, and all of those are now off rent. We have heads of departments that rent their tools, and that's no longer going to be rented. So those are shut down. But all the ancillary vendors such as our hardware stores, we buy lots of lumber, lots of hardware. We were geared to build a set on stage for Lilo, and that went away, of course. So we do make, in fact, we run out of lumber sometimes when we're on Kauai, for example, we ran out of the lumber and had to mill the the dry wood that was in the forest for a gigantic set that they built for Jungle Cruise, just, as an example of how the impact when we move into a a city or a jurisdiction, we do take up a lot of food and um, water and materials that's gone down. That will directly impact their bottom dollar as well.
0: How many members do you have here in Hawaii?
1: We have 700 members, but we have about 1500 non-members who are working towards become their membership. So, About 2,200 people in our database.
0: When another union walks out, what do you have to do on a set in order to shut down and, you know, button things down because no one knows how long it's going to be dark?
1: Right. This is a little different than NCIS, which just kind of closed the doors and, and we're planning to come back. Lilo is actually actively shutting down For a long time, because we expect this to take, well, hopefully it's short, but we're gearing up to have, have it shut down for several weeks or even months. That just means that we had to put things on the side of the stage or dismantle it altogether. It means that containers got packed up and are ready to be shipped out, or items that were planning to fly here were canceled.
0: So it's a real domino truck. effect.
1: Oh, it's huge. Yeah. So the trucks all got to get cleaned and, you know, emptied out and parked away and stored until we get through this. This part- this particular union, so we had the writer's strike on May 1st, and we don't have a lot of writers here in Hawaii. We were lucky to have a few days of shooting, the, the few days here, but it's been impacted on California where thousands of workers have been out of work since May 1st because the writers, there's lots of episodic talk shows that require active writing, and they put picket lines up. So as long as there's no picket line, we were allowed to work. With the Actor's Strike, SAG-AFTRA, it's different because if you don't have anyone to shoot in front of your camera, then you don't have a day's work to plan. It's not like you're shooting landscapes and tourist videos. This is, you know, scripted work with actors that are recognizable that you can't, you know, bring in somebody that looks like them. These This shuts down everything. And that's why it was such a, a powerful impact across the nation and around the world, where a lot of shows that were filming are now shut down. So you can't have, for instance, you can't film without a camera. So if the camera union were to walk off, you wouldn't have be able to shoot and you can't on these projects shoot without actors
0: so at this point then your members are focused on uh putting things away
1: yes we're we've actually wrapped out a lot of things after shooting last night and they're now wrapping today they are um yeah getting ready for to put it all away and and get through this
0: did you folks have an extended day yesterday knowing that this uh a midnight deadline was going to happen, and there would be the walkout.
1: I think they wrapped around seven thirty. They went maybe a little bit long, but it, they kept to the schedule pretty much. They didn't. They shot out one particular set so that they could completely wrap it. But no, we didn't go into midnight or anything. The midnight deadline was um, the night before that.
0: What about the the situation with Moana? I mean, I know the casting call scheduled for this weekend got canceled.
1: Yes. Well, obviously that's disappointing because we had a whole prep crew that was ready to start building and we've they've been scouting and hiring and that's now on ice. So that's extremely disappointing that we couldn't have that happen. But if a picket line had gone up, then that would have stopped all the work. So I think the employers were erring on the side of caution to not have a disruption and just chose to push the date and wait to get through the negotiations, and hopefully get to a contract.
0: You know, I was trying to figure out where a strike line might pop up. We'll just have to wait to see how this kind of plays out.
1: If everyone goes to the SEG aftra website, they have a strike order and information that's in real time. I'm not privy to where they're going to be striking here in Hawaii, but um, the major reason for striking is to disrupt to draw attention to the cause to get them back to the table. And that's, that's why they're striking. They're not striking for, um, you know, this is really important issues that the actors are uniquely have to face. The writers and even our graphic designers, the AI, artificial intelligence is a real concern for us because it, it could affect our work. But when it comes to actors, they, their faces and their images are their their bread and butter and when you can't get to terms on how to control that in media and in products or shows that's a that's a sticking point and that's one of the big reasons that they walked off from what i understand the the bigger stars were going to be protected but i i believe it were the the background extras were not going to be protected as well and i think they walked off in solidarity with all the actors because of those kinds of terminology that's new to our contract. AI is and deep fakes are real issues for actors and those who are in front of the camera. So we're we're affected because we stand in solidarity with them, our members although it's up to them whether they're going to p- cross a picket line or told not to you, we wouldn't be good union members if we did.
0: Is there anything you want to say, just given that, you know, during the pandemic, uh, the movie industry really kind of lifted our economy?
1: You know, I'd love to just say that these shows are backed by major corporations and their leadership, their CEOs make hundreds of millions of dollars. And a lot of the wealth that that these corporations enjoy, we help to build that wealth. And we believe that they have enough to share. To, to ease our concerns, allow us to have a living wage, and allow us to make ends meet, and and these are local people that live here in Hawaii. I just realized someone told me that they thought all of the crew was from the mainland, but a good 70 to 80 percent or more of the crew is lo- are local hires.
0: All right, well, we'll just have to see how this plays out, but thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much for allowing me to speak on the issue.
0: That was Ayatsi Business Representative Iris Barber, who talked to us this morning about the impact of the strike by the actors in Screenwriters Union. Uh, more on this coming up.
2: She was working in a bridal shop in Flushing, Queens, till her boyfriend kicked her out in one of those crushing scenes. What was she to do? Where was she to go? She was out on her
0: family So over the bridge from Flushing to the Sheffield. The sag after strike also serves as a reminder that the 12,000-member Writers Guild of America is in its 10th week of the strike. It's the first time both unions have walked off the job since the 1960s. Hawaii screenwriters held a rally last month in Waikiki in unity with members around the country. Uh, Aaron Kandel, who co-wrote the Disney film Moana, was among those at the event. Uh, HPR's Casey Harlow got a chance to talk with Kandel about what they're fighting for. We're replaying the interview from last month.
3: Any show or movie that you watch in any theater, on any TV, on any streaming platform was written by a member of the WGA, the Writers Guild of America. Uh, There's 11,500 writers in the Guild, and it's writers from people you would know, like a J.J. Abrams, a giant showrunner, or Matt, who's here, who's the showrunner of NCIS Hawaii, down to the blue collar, everyday, struggling working screenwriters who are creating content in the TV shows. They're all in the guild, they're all being squeezed equally and unsustainably to make it almost impossible now to write as a profession that supports a family, kids, A mortgage just like the very basic reasonable living wages
2: so is there a minimum wage or a basic minimum floor for when you work on a tv show or if you wrote something
3: there's a basic minimum floor of like what is considered living wages for writers to essentially have a middle class of writers who aren't making the like shonda rhimes multi-million fortunes but are making enough to be like you would imagine a teacher would make, right? So that you can do what you love, tell the stories that hopefully bring audiences together and make you feel something. But you can also support a family and pay rent, if not mortgage. And that has been more and more and more reduced even as streaming has become bigger. And those companies that produce that content and fund that content are having record profits, but we've had the biggest record reduction in writer income in 35 years. So it's become this round is more of an existential crisis than ever. In 2007, 15 years ago, a lot of that strike was about the emerging streaming market of the internet that at the time, the same studios were negotiating now said, we don't even want to talk about that. There's nothing to talk about because there's no business model for content on the internet there's only YouTube and that's not really a thing yet if we hadn't struck then and won that all the shows on Apple TV and Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and everywhere that most people are now watching shows writers wouldn't have been paid upfront or back end for any of that there would have been no protections and so the same thing is happening now with the advent of streaming wars and AI, and the entire business model has changed from what was traditionally studio-driven and network television to everything's online, on demand, all the time, and every time an audience clicks and watches something, that used to benefit everybody equally across the board, and now writers aren't seeing even pennies of that. So it's just asking for living, reasonable wages.
2: So looking at the streaming wars, you know, we're so used to being able to binge whole seasons now. You know, I'm even guilty of watching four, five, six, twenty 20 episodes <laughs> all in one sitting. So obviously the demand is there. But does that add a lot of pressure on you as a writer to not only make a great product, but also meet those tight time schedules? Because, you know, we're seeing shows immediately drop and then getting picked up for another season.
3: It's a constricting and collapsing of pressure and deadlines on writers and workers everywhere across the board, whether you're an Amazon factory worker and you get docked for every minute that's outside of your 15 minute bathroom break, they are clocking and docking. That's how they're treating workers everywhere. So why should you care? Why should writers matter? Is because we're kind of the tip of an iceberg that what we write on the page, turns into millions of dollars that are generated on production of truck drivers and caterers and makeup artists and actors. And if we used to be able to write on a network show like Friends, for example, you'd have 22 episodes, a full year of guaranteed writing where you'd be getting paid for every episode you're writing and for every time it was streamed and syndicated and resold to a Netflix in a giant deal, a writer would benefit from that. Nowadays, you've got an eight to 10 episode season that they're having a showrunner write every episode with maybe one or two writers. They get paid one episode that is less than a hotel worker or a construction worker on a normal job and you can't sustain your life or career doing that, you can't even make a monthly rent while you're writing on a show. Like imagine if your boss asked you to work for 60 hour weeks for six months for zero pay. That's what happened personally to me on my last Apple feature as an established writer. It's called a producer's pass and it's now the norm is your guaranteed contractual writing step is now being asked to do that for free. And because everybody is being pressured and constricted, you feel like you have to say yes, but then you can't make ends meet. And so that's why the writers are striking because it feels like things are turning into a gig economy. We're going the way of like print journalism.
2: So there's a lot happening here at home, Uh, a lot of TV shows and films being produced here. Can you describe the landscape or ecosystem here in the islands and the people who work in production and why a writer strike eventually impacts them.
3: Yeah, it affects the whole economy locally when you have both positively and negatively, when you have productions come in that bring, and usually there's anywhere from three to six or seven productions at any given time throughout the islands, and those productions bring in millions and millions of dollars and hundreds and hundreds of jobs. And when those stop, as this writer's guild has already affected, there's currently only one production filming And things like NCIS Hawaii, which provides hundreds of jobs, is on hold because they can't write episodes, so there's nothing to shoot. And so that gets put on hold indefinitely. Shows like the Apple show Chief of War, which is Jason Momoa's authentic, wanting to make it as authentic to Hawaii as possible in Olelo Hawaiian with Hawaiian actors. And because of cost-cutting measures, they had to go film the majority of that show in New Zealand. And so there's... Not only jobs and economic value lost, there's cultural representation and opportunities for local talent, local storytellers, actors, uh, upcoming film students, and set PAs and set and wardrobe and all of those people that would have had opportunities to learn on production and elevate themselves to the next tier and next level to bring more authentic Hawaiian storytelling here is being lost in a very real and tangible way. And the more we can not only bring the world to Hawaii through the stories that are filmed here, but tell stories that are of this place that bring Hawaii to the world, That, I think, is important for local storytellers, people like me especially, who are born and raised and want to share the values and the cultural beauty of this place in a broader way.
0: That was Hawaii-based screenwriter Aaron Kondell talking about what's at stake during the current WGA strike, which is now in its 10th week. (laughs) ¶¶ This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
4: Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa,
0: O Moloka, O Lana, O Mau, O Hawaii. It's a summer day in the backyard with plenty of daylight. From late June through September, we enjoy the longest days of the year. You probably learned in elementary school that the Earth orbits the sun and tilts 24 degrees either toward or away from it. That's how we get seasonal changes. For places north of the equator, like Hawaii, summertime means that the Earth's northern hemisphere is tilted toward the sun. As a result, daylight lasts more than 12 hours simply because the sun is at its northernmost position and there is more land exposed to direct sunlight. That's the scientific answer. But throughout history and in cultures around the world, there are other explanations. For today's quiz, we're looking for the Hawaiian myth that explains the longer summer days. Think you know? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Pick up a reusable HP or tote bag if you're the first one to get it right.
5: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neread Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes Community. NereadHawaii.com.
0: Honolulu Civil Beat has a development to a story it broke last month. It was a raid on the downtown offices of a defense contractor. Reporter Nick Gruby joins us from Washington, D.C. for today's reality check. Uh, good morning, Nick, or good afternoon in your, <laughs> on your side of the <laughs> continent.
6: <laughs> Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on today.
0: Yes, and so uh, you uh, did a story about how the offices at Pioneer Plaza uh, uh, were raided by federal investigators.
6: Right, right. So a a couple weeks ago, I broke a story about uh, that execution of a search warrant at the offices of the Hawaiian Native Corporation and um, its subsidiaries uh, that go by the name Dawson. Um, And at the time, we didn't know a lot about that federal investigation. And today, we still don't know too much more about it, other than the fact that it does involve um, a number of different federal agencies, including the IRS, um, that are looking into alleged financial crimes. Now, the piece that we have on Civil Beat today uh, takes a closer look at Chris Dawson, who is the founder of the Hawaiian Native Corporation, and up until recently was the CEO of its 11 subsidiary companies that do operate under the brand name Dawson. Um, Now, uh, as we reported today, Dawson has decided to step down from his leadership post in response to this raid. Um, and other people have stepped in to sort of take over for the company uh, during this time. Now, this is a really big deal because the Dawson companies get hundreds of millions of dollars in government contracts, and they want that money to keep flowing. And so, to me, what I think, uh, what what I see when I think of Dawson leaving uh, or taking a leave of absence is an attempt. By these companies to sort of insulate themselves for, from whatever scandal might be brewing, and to in essence make sure that the money keeps flowing.
0: Yes, and I know when we were talking to them earlier, you know, about uh, Dawson taking over the Kinetics contract over at Red Hill, they issued a statement, you know, saying that uh, the probe was uh, on the uh, Hawaiian Native Corporation and that its subsidiaries, you know, was, wasn't affecting the operating companies of Dawson.
6: Right. And I think that gets back to this idea of sort of compartmentalizing uh, what might be happening here is they want uh, the public and particularly the Department of Defense, which does most of uh, the contracting with Dawson and its subsidiaries, to know that, hey, we're still open for business. Um, Whatever stink might be flowing this way from what the feds are looking at, um, you know, let's make sure it passes right over us.
0: Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, just now I, I got an email from the military saying that that particular contract with uh, uh, the Dawson Company in Red Hill, you know, amounted to you know X amount of millions of dollars. But, yeah, it, it's just been interesting because there's so many different uh, uh, companies under the Dawson Group.
6: That's right. And I mean, what this does is it sort of sheds light on this program that exists under the U.S. Small Business Administration. It's known as the 8A Business Development Program. And through that program, um, Native Hawaiian organizations such as the Hawaiian Native Corporation can get special access to uh federal contracts. And specifically, they can get sole source contracts from the Department of Defense, uh, which means they don't have to compete for those contracts. And it can be incredibly lucrative uh, for for these entities. Um, of course, they're supposed to use some of the money that they get and give it back to the Native Hawaiian community. But as our story notes today, it can sort of be hard to measure that because there's no public reporting re- requirement there. But what I think is interesting um, about the the story we have today is who Dawson has tapped to fill in for Chris Dawson as he steps away from the company. Uh, one of the people in particular is Andy Weiner, who's the former chief of staff to U.S. Senator Brian Schatz. Uh, Weiner is incredibly politically connected in the islands. Um, and he has been working as a lobbyist for Dawson for the past couple of years um, to try to look for ways to expand this contracting program that they've been able to benefit from over the years uh, to the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and he, he's trying to do that at a time when the company, of course, is facing uh, its own crisis that's playing out in public in front of us right now. Yeah,
0: and and your story does mention uh, you know a lot of the different uh, uh, local groups that benefit uh, you know uh, from uh, uh, the federal contracts. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean it, it's interesting, so, including polo. And and we have featured Chris Dawson here on the show uh, about that very subject. But uh, appreciate your reporting. Thank you so much.
6: Thanks a lot, Catherine. I appreciate you having me on.
0: That was reporter Nick Ruby with today's reality check. uh, To read the Phil story, Uh, visit civilbeat.org. And we should mention Dawson is an underwriter of Hawaii Public Radio.
6: On a recent Wait, Wait, Roxanne Roberts sent a warning to the aspiring politicians posting workout selfies online.
1: There's a lot of men who think that they look really good naked or without shirts, and somebody needs to disabuse them of this.
6: I'm Peter Sagel, You never know when one of those guys will pop up on your screen, so stay safe by sticking to the radio, as we talked to Broadway legend Patti Lapone on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR.
5: Beginning Saturday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and
2: creative artists.
6: Hello, I'm Daniel Drayson, author of A New Science of the Afterlife. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the
5: survival of consciousness after death. Beginning Sunday morning at 11.
0: Sunday is a deadline to sign up for what's billed as a summit to celebrate the sister state and uh, sister city relationships between Hawaii and Japan. It will explore what more can be done to help our economies with the overarching threat of tourism. Reina Koneko is a driving force behind the event. She explains what's in store as officials focus on tourism, sustainable energy, agriculture, and education.
7: This is the first summit that's centered around the sister relationships that the state of Hawaii and the city and counties of Hawaii um, have uh, with Japan. So uh, we have six governors and vice governors from different prefectures in Japan and 16 mayors from different cities in Japan attending this summit, along with other people from Japan that are business leaders, people who work in energy, in uh, ag tech, education, all traveling here uh, to meet with their counterparts, people who work in similar industries, so that we can talk about uh, where we're at post-pandemic, what kinds of uh, ideas and best practices we can share with each other as an island nation and an island state, um, so we can tackle some of the issues that we have. But
0: the focus is not just tourism.
7: The focus isn't just tourism because we have um, actually five different panel discussions on different topics. But I think there will be a thread about everything comes down to the economics of doing things. So, for example, with education, we we're going to talk about something called education tourism. So, the resumption of uh, reciprocal exchange programs between high schoolers and universities um, in Japan and Hawaii that really contribute to tourism in directly because these students are coming back and forth to our cities and living here while they're going to school. So that would be a form of tourism. You know, we have um, other types um, of tourist sports and cultural, of course, and there will be a thread of the resumption of tourism back and forth. This is uh, one of the purposes of bringing people together at the summit is to be able to discuss what kind of ideas we have in order to attract the Japanese tourists back to Hawaii for various reasons. And then also, but we do want to also offer our ability to promote Japan and different parts of Japan. I mean, there's more to Japan than Tokyo, Osaka, Kyoto. You know, there's so many other beautiful places to visit in Japan. So we w- would like to help. Our sisters promote their cities and their prefectures um, to people of Hawaii to travel there too or to do, you know, extended stays there as well. So that's what the purpose is, is for us to be able to sit down and really share what kinds of things we can do to help promote each other.
0: Who are you trying to attract as far as the the local participation?
7: Of course, then people who are working in uh, in energy, in tourism, in education. And uh, the other topic we're covering is uh, cross-border commerce and sustainable agriculture. So uh, people who work in those areas or uh, do work in those areas, how large of a group do you expect? Right now, we're looking at about 400 total. It's looking pretty much half-half, 200 from Japan, 200 from Hawaii attending. What else is on the landscape as far as agriculture? I think the discussion for the sustainable agriculture panel will be around what we can do to with small farmers and medium-sized farmers. And ag tech is going to be a big part of the discussion what technology can do to help scale agriculture. One of the panelists actually is the president of Tokyo University Agriculture and Technology. So, you know, he's going to share a lot of the things that Japan is doing technology-wise as well as, you know, what the farmers are, are doing. And and also here, on we have um, Murray Clay from Ulupono Initiative and uh, Denise Yamaguchi from Hawaii Ag Foundation, you know, to, to shed light on what's going on here in Hawaii and then For the, I guess, if you want to say both sides, Hawaii and Japan, what kind of best practices we can share to really, you know, have a movement in not just sustainable practices in agriculture, but also to be profitable. So when we go back home, when they go back to Japan, we can continue these conversations and hopefully make, you know, do some projects together. If possible, make some collaborations happen. The other thing is that um, the elected officials, meaning Governor Green and the four county mayors, will be meeting um, separately in what we're calling executive sessions. So simultaneously, while these general sessions are occurring, the panel discussions, the um, Governor Green and the four county mayors will be meeting with their sister counterparts to take a deeper dive into how you know, we can share ideas and collaborate. We're still selling individual tickets to attend, and that can be found at our website, uh, jashawaii.org slash summit. And uh, we have uh, both in English and Japanese, so people can register to attend the summit that way. If you're a company and you'd like to sponsor, we are more than happy to have companies come in as sponsors as well. Anything more on the culture side? I think that probably will surface in the tourism panel, Uh, tourism management and also what um, Hawaii has to offer, you know, with culture and like hula, you know, our our culture here in Hawaii and being a melting pot and all. I think all of that will surface in the tourism panel discussion. The reason why we want to do this is because. The numbers that we're hearing, you know, aren't too good. Our Japanese tourists aren't going to come back until next year sometime, and we'd like, you know, we'd like to figure out a way to give them a reason to come sooner than that. I think the summit is, uh, the timing is is right, um, in terms of uh, being able to discuss this and maybe make some things, put some things into place quickly, quicker so that we can have our uh, Japanese visitors come back to Hawaii. During
0: the pandemic, I interviewed this one gal. It was, you know, almost toward the end. And she had signed a lease for a uh, bridal store in Waikiki. And, you know, thinking that it it was just going to bounce back. And of course it didn't. I
7: think uh, we're working our way towards that, Mm -hmm. uh, towards these type of businesses being able to start up again. But, you know, Quite frankly, we're not there yet. So we really, we really feel that you know we we want to be able to put this all out on the table and come up with some ideas on how to revive and rejuvenate some of these uh, businesses that are uh, attractive, you know, right. to um, to the Japanese to come back to Hawaii. What can we put into place? What can our travel operators? What can our local businesses put into place? to help attract despite the roadblocks such as the weak yen.
0: That was Raina Kaneko talking about next week's Hawaii-Japan Sister State and Sister City Summit to be held at the Hilton Hawaiian Village July 27th and 28th. It's an effort to help each other boost our economies as the tourism market, tourism market from Japan has been slow to rebound and may not return until next year.
7: Sisters, 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 there were never such devoted sisters.
0: Never had to have a chaperone, no sir. I'm here to
7: keep my eye on her. Caring, sharing, every little thing that we are wearing.
5: Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, specializing in residential and commercial building projects. Learn more about services at greenbuildinghawaii.com. When you're making a raunchy R-rated comedy and you want a nasty song to match, you ask the professionals.
7: Adele wrote Megan and Cardi B, and was like, the way that you guys reclaimed your sexuality with this song, we would love to repurpose this song and do this
5: for Asian women. Ashley Park on her new film, Joyride. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor, Anchor Systems, Hawaii.
0: Hawaii has had a checkered past with tsunamis. The earliest in our recorded history was in 1813. The deadliest was in 1946 in Hilo, when 173 people were killed. The last time one caused damage was last year, when a volcanic explosion in Tonga sent a surge that impacted a snorkel tour company on the Kona coast. A new book published this summer, Tsunami, Hawaii's Amazing History of the Monster Waves, recounts Hawaii's history with the destructive waves. It also reminds our state that we need to be prepared for the next one. It was written by Walter Dudley, a retired University of Hawaii at Hilo oceanography professor and co-founder of the Pacific Tsunami Museum in Hilo. The Conversation's Russell Subiano talked with Dudley about the book.
4: Back in the 80s, I was teaching an evening class for veterans, and I'm one myself. I was a paratrooper in the Army, and all the classes and one one evening, and they would bring poo-poos and we'd have a break in the middle. And so I gave the scientific lecture on tsunamis. And then the guys started talking story about their personal experience with the tsunami. And there were some amazing stories of survival. And I said, has anybody written these down? And they said, no. And I thought, no, this is really important. These are very powerful stories. And if we ever want to learn from the past, You know, as Roger Kipling said, if history were taught as stories, it would never be forgotten. So I began collecting their stories, and that ultimately led to the first tsunami book.
8: What is it that fascinates you about tsunamis, about these events, so much that you decided to open a museum and write a book about it?
4: First of all, you know, there was no warning system until after the 1946 tsunami. And Dr. Jagger, who founded HVO, He tried. He said they should have a warning system because he understood the relationship between earthquakes and tsunamis. So finally, after the 46, and, you know, people were killed on on Kauai, Oahu, Maui, but most of them were on the big island, Hilo, with 96 people. And so it was finally after that tragic loss of life, which could have been prevented, that they established the warning system three years later. And there were small tsunamis in the 50s, in 52 and 57. And people began to think that, well, maybe they're really not that dangerous, which sadly led to the tragedy of 1960, when people actually went down to watch or because the tsunami was predicted to arrive in the middle of the night. They thought, oh, this is just too much trouble, hassle to get up in the middle of the night. And for older people, it really would be a problem. So people didn't evacuate. And that's why there were... You know, over 60 lives lost all in Hilo from that tsunami. And, and I fear we're now in a similar situation because it's been so many years since we haven't had a big tsunami strike. And every year there, there are two things which make the situation worse. One is the human factor, that there are fewer people around who can remember. And that's really the mission of the Tsunami Museum is to share the stories. And, you know, when we first opened, our volunteer docents were mostly tsunami survivors because they realized how very important it was that people learn from their experience and not make the same mistakes. But also every year that goes by, the geologic risk increases because of something called seismic gaps. These are areas all around the Pacific where they normally have earthquakes. There have been big earthquakes in the past and they haven't had any. In some cases, they're really long overdue. There are a couple in the Aleutian Islands. There's one off the coast of Acapulco, Mexico. The geologists describe as a tectonic time bomb waiting to go off. They're off the coast of South America. They're all around the Pacific. And we in Hawaii are really the bullseye for all of those tsunamis. So we really need to in- increase our awareness and our education. And education is, I mean, the warning system is much improved. But in Hawaii, we not only have these tsunamis which come from all around the Pacific, and admittedly, if it's coming from Chile and we have 15 hours, there's plenty of time to do an organized evacuation. But we create our own local tsunamis in the islands, and for those, you know, you may have five, 15, even if you're on the, you know, if it comes to the Big Island, you're on Kauai, you still have less than an hour. So people need to understand nature's warning signs, and those have saved lots of lives in fairly recent tsunami. I I talk about that in the chapter at the end of the book in Samoa. In 2009, they were so close to the epicenter of the earthquake, which caused that big South Pacific tsunami, that they had very little time. And just the week before, they had training in the schools. The kids knew what to do. And, And village chiefs in American Samoa told me the kids went around ringing the bells, telling everybody to evacuate because they knew what to do. And we need to have... Everyone in Hawaii, all the kids in the schools, all the adults as well, and the visitors. And most of them come from places that don't really have a tsunami threat if you're from the, the Midwest. So we need to make a better effort at preparing people, not to be scared, but to be prepared.
8: What did we learn from that 2009 tsunami in American Samoa that we should be doing here? Is there anything specific that you believe Hawaii should be doing?
4: They had very active training in the schools. They'd done evacuation drills. And a government official I talked to said he raced down to a school in his car. And he said, when he got there, the kids were already headed up the mountain evacuating because they knew what to do. And they only had minutes. The school was completely destroyed. So, yeah, we need to take this seriously.
8: When you were talking earlier about how the last major tsunami that we had was back in the 60s, is this gap of time between the last significant event and today does it mean that the longer that we're not impacted by a tsunami does that mean that the next one could be really impactful
4: Absolutely because you know we're surrounded by these subduction zones where the plates you know Pacific plate goes underneath the west coast and in Chile and so forth and little earthquakes are a good thing because they help relieve the stress but when you haven't had them the pressure builds up until It's going to be released. And prior to the really big earthquakes, there's usually been a big time gap.
8: Where do you feel would be the biggest threat? Is it from Chile? I know we had one come from Alaska last year when there was that big volcanic explosion in Tonga that caused some significant rises here. I I know we didn't exactly get a tsunami, but I know a lot of people on the west coast of the big island, they experienced some, some damage from some really big surge.
4: Well, you know, that that's very interesting because the warning system is set up to monitor earthquakes because we have, you know, seismic stations all around the globe, which report back in very, very rapidly. So within less than five minutes, the warning center can determine if an earthquake could potentially have generated a tsunami based on how big it is and how deep it is. The deep ones typically don't move the ocean floor enough. And of course, earthquakes less than seven don't unless they trigger a landslide like here in Hawaii, where it could generate a local tsunami. But the more time that goes by as the pressure continues to build up, and you were mentioning Tonga, but that was volcanic. And the last big volcanic tsunami was in 1883 when Krakatau in Indonesia had a big volcanic explosion that killed over 40,000 people, the tsunami, some as far away as Sri Lanka. But there are very rare events. But now the warning system is learning more about those. And we were really lucky in Hawaii because there were tsunami waves as big as three feet high on the side of Maui, away from, you know, in Kahului, which is the opposite side from Tonga because these waves wrap around. And, you know, if I'm at the beach with my grandkids in the middle of the day, a three-foot wave for a two-year-old could be deadly. We were really lucky that that struck in the middle of the night, but we need to learn from that. And I think we are learning more about those volcanic ones and better ways to monitor those. And, you know, in Tonga they were lucky. There were only a couple of people killed largely because there were no visitors because of COVID. But there were two ladies in Peru which were killed at the beach because there was no warning put out. So, you know, we're hopefully learning from that mistake. Still the biggest threat is from these large earthquakes around the Pacific Rim. Biggest threat for us here in Hawaii.
8: And going back to your book, I know a lot of your book is sharing the history of tsunamis in the Pacific and specifically here in Hawaii, but I know that some of your book and a lot of the purpose of the Pacific Tsunami Museum is to continue to share these stories from the survivors, and I imagine you've encountered some very interesting and fascinating stories from survivors. Is there one that you can share that has either astounded you or really touched you?
4: Oh my gosh, they're very, very powerful. And you know, I can't even talk about the stories where people tell me that they lost family members because, but um, one of the remarkable stories was about a Mrs. Ito in 1960. She didn't evacuate. Her house was destroyed with her in it. She wound up floating on a screen in the water. Fortunately, it was a wooden frame screen and she was tiny. She floats out to sea from Hilo through the treetops She's being pulled along the coast. She uh, decided to make her peace with Buddha and she's awaiting the ghost ship. And in the early morning hours, she sees a white ship coming, which was the Coast Guard cutter from Kona, which had been dispatched after the tsunami to come around to render aid. And the Coast Guardman actually had to leap in the water and lift her out because she wasn't expecting that. And after she shared her experience, she then became a docent at the museum and she continued into her nineties. And, you know, she'd tell her story and people would just be a combination of amazed and in tears, but she survived. Thanks in her case to good karma, good luck. But there are so many stories where people were just so very, very lucky and we don't want to depend on luck.
8: Walter, thanks so much for your time today. Can you tell our listeners where they can get your book?
4: It's published by Mutual. So I think, you know, like basically books on the Big Island, most of the local bookstores should have it. And of course, nowadays you can order everything online and it'll show up really soon. And also you could come to the Pacific Tsunami Museum if you're on the Big Island. And when I'm there, I'll be happy to sign it for you if you want somebody to scribble on it.
8: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Walter, thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed talking to you.
4: Well, and thank you for putting this out there because people really need to learn. Thank you so much, Russell.
0: That was author Walter Dudley talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Dudley's new book, Tsunami, Hawaii's Amazing History of the Monster Waves, is available through Mutual Publishing. We'll have a link to it as well as a link to the Pacific Tsunami Museum on the conversation page of our website later today. Now it's time to shine the light on today's answer to today's quiz. Earlier we asked if you knew the Hawaiian myth that explained the prolonged days of summer. According to legend, Hina had an idea of how to lengthen them in order to work longer. She went to her son Maui and told him of her plan. Maui enlisted the help of his brothers, and the men set out on a fishing trip of solar proportions. The men fashioned a noose and waited for sunrise. And when the sun's head and shoulders began to fall into his trap, Maui made sure the sun was fully tangled in the noose before he shouted to his brothers, Pull! Maui brushed the sun and hit it on the head with his fish hook, demanding that the sun travel more slowly. The sun complied to avoid further blows and from then on, the sun would spend more time in the Hawaiian sky every summer. And our winner today, Kimo from Wailua. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at (music) hawaiipublicradio.org. That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, rail skeptics jump on the train. We get their thoughts. And what are your thoughts about the new system? Have you been for been out for a ride? Call our Talkback line. Leave your comments, 808-792-8217. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page of our website or Or sign up for the conversation podcast on Spotify or Apple and hey guys we have a new podcast dropping today this is our Hawaii produced by Savannah Harriman Pote and our Russell SubiONO. our program is produced by Russell Lillian song and Stephanie Hahn the backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello theme music courtesy of gypsy 808 I'm Catherine Cruz join us on Monday pick up the conversation